0: you Hello, I'm Sam Clement and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by Liam Dempsey from the Spotlight Podcast.
1: Hello, Liam. Hello, happy to be here.
0: Thank you very much for joining us today for our our, our 90 Minutes Film Festival. Listeners to the Spotlight Podcast are probably more used to you talking about mostly TV with maybe a little bit of cinema thrown in there.
1: Oh, we do some cinema. Spotlight is a Star Trek podcast presented from a non-Trekkie perspective, meaning of that being that the three of us who host it uh, were not massive Trekkies when we started the podcast. The idea was to take this massive franchise with a huge fan following and kind of offer a fresh perspective on it. And we actually started with the movies because of the fact that we are all massive film nerds. Like, we all did film degrees in one form or another. And we're like, right, let's start with the films and do 13 of them, see how we go, Let's like, see if we want to continue afterwards. And then we did, and, like, we continued, and it was a real journey. And we now do a section of the show called Spotlight of the Movies where we look at a film that involved a significant member of Star Trek alumni either in front or behind the camera so we do a lot of tv but we do do quite a lot of movie stuff as well
0: so you've been doing spotlight for a little while now and it's uh, it's quite a commitment for some people who were maybe way back when not that into star trek <laughs> to now probably a lot of your life revolves around star trek
1: yeah that's no, very true i mean yeah we've been doing it since september 2016 it's one of those things. I mean, we are we are a monthly podcast, although we do do a lot of bonus episodes. So in the end, I see, we end up putting about two two episodes out a month, and yeah, there is a lot of Star Trek. I mean, obviously, we're now doing Spotlight in the movies, so we kind of go down other divergent paths as well. But yeah, I have watched more Star Trek in the last two and a half years than I ever had in like the previous like three decades of my life. Uh, but you know, we wouldn't be st- we wouldn't still be doing it if we didn't enjoy it. Mm. And not only do we enjoy making the podcast, but genuinely, we've enjoyed discovering that world as well. It, it was a case of like, oh, we can actually see what the fuss is about.
0: Do you now consider yourself a Trekkie that you've spent the last two and a half
1: years making a podcast about Star Trek? (laughs) I mean, you know, I would have thought that qualifies me. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah... I mean, I guess I do in the sense of I like Star Trek. Like, I, I now watch quite a lot of it. But the thing is, we're still on this constant journey, so it's not like I've watched all of it or anything like that. Because that, that's the whole point of the podcast. We're still discovering
0: through the course of this uh, discovering bits of Star Trek. Do you have a favorite part of the Star Trek universe now? Is there a bit that you're you 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 have become a like a genuine fan of, and you might carry on watching that series or or, or that? you know, sort of strand of the universe uh, outside of the podcast?
1: I mean, so far, apart from Star Trek Discovery, which kind of came about as we were doing the podcast, so we were able to kind of get on that series on the ground floor, along with everyone else, and we have all really fallen in love with that. You know, it's a great, great show. I think that it, it really has reawakened the franchise, which did seem to be dying a bit of a death. But in terms of ones that we've looked back on, and found I, like I say, I think it, it, it's the original series all the way. I don't think I really appreciated what a great actor William Shatner was before doing this podcast, mm. because he's that he's that person he's become almost a. I don't want to say a joke, but like you know, I think it's so his his acting style now is so spoofed mm. and everything like that. It's hard to remember actually when you go back to that original series. It's pre-him becoming that character. Kind of thing. It's, it's pre-big fame for him. So actually, you go back to his early episodes, he's given such an amazing performance. He's really good. He's got some incredible speeches in those original series episodes. And, you know, now through Spot on the Moves, we started to watch some of his early work as well. And, you know, he is genuinely a really, really good actor.
0: How have Star Trek fans reacted to your podcast? You know, your, your USP is you're not Star Trek fans. You're not Trekkies talking about this show. Have you been welcomed in?
1: Yeah, I'd say they've reacted surprisingly well. I think we assumed we'd get loads of hate. I think the kind of people who are hardcore trackies have sort of embraced us because of the fact that we're so different i think they like hearing such a fresh take rather than kind of people who are really well versed in it and going oh that's that's interesting but also i think we've been able to kind of bring people along who kind of you know are now watching star Trek for the first time mm. because we we're not as precious about it maybe we're made to have a bit more fun than some people can with the franchise so yeah I, we it's actually been really really nice and we've got some lovely responses to the show from hardcore track fans.
0: Awesome. Well, that's the best uh, best kind of feedback. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. 100%. For this podcast, we've asked you to select a film that's under 90 minutes for this
1: festival. And it sounds like you're quite a big film fan in your own right. I'm ravenous about film. Uh, We're both on Letterboxd, Letterboxd. uh, which is an amazing (laughs) kind of film website where you can log all the films you see. And I I genuinely think that kind of almost reignited my love for film. And now I watch more films than I've before. And my watch list on Letterboxd is about half the number of films I've seen in my entire life.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's like,
1: yeah, I just want to see. I'm not, I'm never getting through them. I'm never getting through them. But I want them. Like uh, It's just, yeah, I, I love digesting film
0: good. If you have that watch list, it's sort of like a, a semi-public declaration. I will watch this yes, film, yeah, <laughs> yes. I have to do it. This is a promise. Yes. <laughs> when we ask you to choose a film that's under 90 minutes long, is that something that you usually look for in a movie runtime, or is it really not about that and, and uh, this maybe took a little bit more thinking about?
1: Yeah, when you first told me about this podcast, I remember being really excited by it because of the fact... I don't think it's something I look for in terms of going like, oh, this film needs to be short, but it is something I really appreciate in terms of, I love a lot of older movies, like movies from the 40s and 50s tend to be shorter. Like a lot of film, black and white film noirs, for instance, tend to be really short and sharp. It's just kind of everything is pace, pace, pace. Perfect example for me is Cape Fear, mm-hmm. the Robert Mitchum version from the 50s. I think that's about 90 minutes or pretty short. And the Martin Scorsese version, which is also good, is far longer, but I would pick the Mitchum version every single time because I just think it does the same job in a far shorter runtime better. None of the Star Trek films are 90 minutes or less. I don't think so. No, they're all quite long and kind of epic.
0: It feels like they're all they want to showcase the uh, you know so the, the, these bigger stories than TV shows, so they've made them like yeah, bigger in terms yeah, of yeah, runtime yeah. as well as
1: bigger in terms of the story. Can't just be an episode of the TV show. So no. <laughs> big, yeah, bigger journeys. So Liam, what did you choose for the ninety minutes or less film fest? I chose 2004's Dead Man's Shoes. The fourth feature from Shane Meadows,
0: 24-7, A Room for Romeo Brass, one of the UK's most exciting directors. Dead Man Shoes is a gritty, yet fiercely moral tale of gangland retribution. Two brothers return to the hometown they left eight years earlier to find it still run by the same gang of small-time drug dealers and petty thugs. Their purpose, it soon becomes clear, is not reunion, but revenge. A quest of particular significance for Richard, Paddy Considine, the leader of the two, whose obsessive desire to even the score will lead them into dangerous territory. Evoking Get Carter in its avenging brother scenario and featuring an outstanding central performance from Considine, Dead Man Shoes is Meadows' finest film to date. Oof, that's quite a waffly synopsis. I mean, (laughs) I agree that
1: it is his finest film to date. I think whoever wrote that has perhaps missed the ending of the film where he talks about kind of it being a morally righteous kind of crusade like i'm pretty sure the whole point of the film is that's not the case
0: (laughs) i think they're going for the genre angle they've got that get carter reference in there although i would say probably not the most obvious revenge movie comparison
1: see it's funny (laughs) like i do think there is a lot of get carter in it you know like they say the avenging brother motif but i think also I do think there is a kind of, there's a certain, there's a certain brutality to it, which kind of evokes Get Carter and a kind of meditative quality as well.
0: One of the quotes on the front of the DVD, which probably sums it up better than the the coffee on the back, is Taxi Driver meets Rambo First Blood. In the Midlands, Uncut
1: Magazine, four stars. (laughs) Now defunct Uncut Magazine. (laughs) This
0: also has a quote from Zoo on the front. It really is a very timely DVD. (laughs) I think we should just do a spoiler warning before we start discussing kind of the meat of this movie, because I think if you haven't seen this film before, it's best to go in not knowing too much about it. So pause the podcast, watch the movie, it's less than ninety minutes long, and we'll be here when you get back.
1: What them little lines in your hair? What, them? Hmm. You didn't. I certainly did not. you did. No, I didn't. When you cut it. I try to look like a gangster. I'm, not, I'm going to grow it anyway. What are you growing it like? I don't know, long hair. Like Bon Jovi? <laughs> no. I'm going to have to go back to town in a bit, mate, to sort some business out. I don't want to
0: go, Richard.
1: Uh, when we were at uni in 2005, everyone owned a copy of this DVD. It was kind of a well known film amongst film buffs. Whereas now there's probably an entire generation that haven't seen this who have kind of been raising streaming services and stuff. As far as I'm aware, th- this isn't on any of the major streaming kind of services like Netflix or anything. So there's probably loads of people who haven't seen it now. And so I really wanted to shout it out because I think it is an absolute masterpiece. Shamo's my favourite filmmaker, not only my favourite living director, but literally like my favourite filmmaker ever. Like this is, film is is a very gritty, realistic film, but it's a revenge movie and it has got elements of horror in it as well and kind of almost kind of gangster film as well. So it's he really kind of, boils that all together in a big pot and it works so well for me a lot of his films tend to explode in an act of cathartic violence at the climax of the film and that's my back <laughs> <laughs> you're right a lot of his films do
0: sort of uh, have a scene of violence but he he says he's not a violent person but his film is sort of a way to express this you know sometimes he has feelings you know this person should be punished or i disagree with this and and it's sort of a way for him to explore his feelings and ultimately it
1: usually results in sort of a big act of violence i mean i do think he's i think he's anti-violence and i think this film very much puts across that message mm. like i say like you know the ending of the film so we are getting spoilers is all about, you know, there's that saying like, how long can you look into the abyss before the abyss looks back into you? And that's what this film is about. Mm. It's for me, I'm a big fan of the revenge genre, and there is a lot of trash in the revenge movie genre. But when they get it right, it's something that really chimes with me. And for me, this is the ultimate revenge movie because not only is it a, just a brilliant revenge film in terms of you're watching it, you're seeing the flashbacks, and go, are oh, these scumbags they deserve what's coming to them and everything like that but then it counteracts that with the message at the end of going no like now the guy who you thought was going on this morally righteous crusade like against these bad guys has actually become the monster himself
0: i really like how this film is paced how the sort of drama unfolds and this is a story which is sort of taking place over there's two different timelines there's a big sort of flashback section um, which is interspersed into sort of the reality now and and i love that when you first see pad and his brother Anthony played by Toby Kebbell when you first see them they're sort of walking across these moors and it's, it's quite intriguing but it's also shot really artfully and it's sort of quite highbrow and, and this guy Paddy Constantine's character is is clearly on a mission you know he's, he's, uh, he's, he's determined but you don't know why and, and I sort of like that it sort of puts everything in play in probably about five minutes of screen time for you to to sort of go on this wild ride with Paddy's character.
1: He starts committing his acts of revenge before you realise why he's doing it, which actually is really clever, and I think you kind of almost forget about that now, because I've watched this film countless times, and you almost forget that that's the case, because you know already going in what's going on. But actually, yeah, when he's in that pub at the beginning, and you get the iconic moment where... <laughs> A guy walks into the bar, and Paddy Cosny just turns around in his chair and just stares directly at him mm. for ages intently. And eventually the guy turns around and just goes, what the f*** are you looking at, pal? And he just screams at him. Like, it is just so, so good. And he freaks the guy out so hard. And you're like, what is going on? What is their connection? Do they know each other? Like, how has this come about? And of course, it transpires that, you know, this gang who you kind of feel out of maybe boredom and... Poverty kind of eventually kind of take their aggression out on Toby Kebble, who is Paddy Constantine's little brother, uh, who's left alone uh, when he goes off to fight as a soldier. And he's clearly suffering from some kind of learning disability. They take advantage of him and just, you know do, do all psychologically and physically kind of torture him mm. in a lot of ways. It's a real like campaign of abuse over time. And it's it, very upsetting. The like you say, the black and white uh, flashbacks that show this,' it, really simple but effective. It feels so, so real. In terms of like, you know, anyone who's experienced any type of bullying or anything like or seen anything like that occur, like, knows the way it's depicted here, it just feels so authentic. Because like you said, like, you know, people should just go away and watch the film before they listen to this because yeah, the the big revelation of the film that comes in a sort of sixth sense like twist. It's one of those things where, although at the time I think Anyone who did that sort of twist post Sixth Sense, people always get a bit like, ah, oh, yeah. You know, but she here, I think it really works because I don't really feel like it's played as a twist in a lot of ways. I just think it's played as something where, yeah, of course that was the case. Of course he was never there. Like they never tried to kind of, you know, make you think he was, he, he, he was always just, he's the ghost who haunts his brother because hmm. he feels so much guilt and remorse for leaving him and abandoning him. And also, as we find at the end, probably his own feelings of resentment towards mm. his brother
0: i think it's a testament to the filmmaking because in terms of how the action unfolds in that first encounter in the club paddy Constantine's character is just being really weird and sort of hyper aggressive yeah, 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 and yeah. you're a bit like okay this guy is this guy a bit unhinged like what's his deal why is he picking on this guy playing pool and then you later find out see he's got a vendetta against these guys but toby Kebble's character is there and and he just sort of like he looks away from the guy but yeah. You're thinking about it like if they had known that like he would they would obviously see him and later on in the film the lead gangster Sonny has a confrontation with Paddy Considine's character uh, on the side of a street and Toby Kebbell was just sort of standing a little bit in the background yes like, in yeah, full yeah. view of the whole gang who had tormented him so but we're not looking at that at the point because Shane Meadows has made the the action on screen right in front of us that showdown between Paddy and and, and uh, the Sonny character like such a juicy bit of acting we're just watching them and we're not really thinking logically about it so i, I sort of like that like, it's sort of hiding in plain view this this like what could be seen as a twist
1: yeah that scene between richard who played by paddy cosadine and Sonny, played by gary stretch is electric like and as you say is that thing of it it can't make sense you can't kind of do believe that if he was there, they'd just ignore him because we've shown that they don't give a about him. He's nothing to them, but also they're concentrating on Richard because he's the actual threat. And not only that, but they've already worked out that it's Anthony's brother. Mm. Uh, they've already said, uh, it, it's Anthony's brother. That's that's who it is. We definitely know it's him. So it's not like that would be a revelation. Like, they go, oh wait a minute, the acting going on in that scene is so amazing that you just ignore anything else. I mean, that is probably, I mean, I, I feel like I love every scene in this movie. But I say that's possibly my favourite scene because I think that is one of the great little kind of like showdown scenes between two characters ever. Every line of dialogue in that is is practically iconic and there's such a great frisian between them because Gary Stretch he's a really super handsome like dude like and he's in leather jacket he looks he's a cool looking guy Mm. like to the point that I think he's amazing this movie and I can't work out why he hasn't become a bigger star the cleverness of the casting is he is tall handsome cool looking he kind of he very much he's kind of overshadows Paddy Gonson in terms of size and you watch it and you go Usually, this guy would be playing the hero, and Paddy Cosine would be playing the kind of the the bad guy essentially. And I suppose that's why it was because in this, Paddy Cosine is playing a sort of Michael Myers, Jason esque figure. Like you know, they, this has got elements of horror when he first appears at the window and he's got the gas mask on. Yeah, they they are elements of slasher movie. In this and he's so weird like you say like that moment where we come across him, he's he's jumping up and down on the spot mm-hmm. he's like readying himself for this showdown and his entire demeanor is odd and unnerving he's like current boiling with rage like shaking with it it's like undulating out of his body I didn't stop it I didn't stop it well i wish you had
0: because you'd have stopped a lot of carnage. He wants to see them suffer because he's yes. he's on he's not just like doing this because he wants to kill them, which is his sort of goal. But he wants them to suffer before he kills them, and he's which is quite sadistic. Like, yeah. and he's playing yeah. with them. He he's rude to the guy in the pool hall, freaks him out, and then he's really nice to him the next time they bump into him, like so nice. Yeah. And then then that freaks the guy out even more. And then and then yeah, then and throughout the film, he teases them, breaks into the house, paints on their faces and stuff, and then and then the killing starts. But.
1: They're already in they're already spooked by this point. What's funny is despite the fact that you're seeing them in the past do terrible things and they clearly haven't learnt their lesson, it's not like the the lost member of the gang who's run away from this life. They're clearly still the same horrible people. Mm. They're just a bit older and stuff. But because they are all friends, there is a camaraderie and a humour between them. That feels so real uh, that you can't help but love them a little bit. Like you know, you kind of do warm to them. And when they all start getting killed off, or what's really clever is the the first one to die, Gary Stretch's performance as Sonny, the leader of the gang, where he breaks down in tears, like crying over the body of his dead friend, is so real and authentic that you just you are like, no, these guys aren't inhuman monsters. It's more that they're just real people who have done some very nasty things, but they still have human emotions, (laughs) everything like that. And you you really feel that. And it does mean as they go on, they get picked off. There is an emotion to it that wouldn't be there without that. And, you know, when he finally gets to killing the last three, like in the house... Those deaths feel really poignant.
0: I think because these characters are portrayed as being human, right? they've made a lot of bad decisions in their past. They are bullies, they are drug dealers. But when you see them together, they do act like friends and they're human. They also are scared together. They have a laugh together at the beginning. And then as the film goes on, they get more and more scared together. And I think that works as a device because we, the audience, then start to feel scared for them, Mm. even though our protagonist in, in Paddy Considine's mission is to get rid of them. But we're sort of not always rooting for Paddy because we spend more time with these guys And them talking about, you know, what they're going to do to stop him, how they're going to make a plan. You know, they try and defend themselves at some point points and ultimately fail. And then there's sort of like these weird interludes where they sort of forget about Paddy and they focus on just, you know, getting through the next few minutes, like cooking pot noodles for each other. Sorting out the trash, doing the recycling, which is not what you'd expect in a film about revenge as you're going into the third act and your final three characters are about to be picked
1: off. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is because these guys are, they're just... Like low level drug dealers in some little town in the Midlands. Mm. Like, you know, they're not big, good fella level gangsters or anything like that. And I think that's the thing. They live very normal, humble lives. Mm. And I think this film's structure is absolutely unreal because it moves at such a pace. They pack so much in. And it kind of is like, the end of the first act is sort of them going to confront Richard at the farmhouse that mm. he's staying on and you literally feel like it's, it's it's about half an hour in and they've already got a kind of rifle and it feels like the big showdown that they're going to try and kill him and obviously that all goes wrong mm. but you feel like you've already built up to the climax of the film and then suddenly it goes into act two and kind of built up with them gradually getting picked off Until you get to the end when suddenly he kills off what seem to be the last three members of the gang. And that's literally at the hour mark Mm. when he kills them. And that's when you get the revelation of, oh no, there's there's one more member of the gang who we didn't know about. And that propels us into the last act of the film. It's just, I think it it packs so much in its running time, man. I really do. You okay? Yeah. You know, the lads had this ridiculous idea that... Yeah, it was me.
0: Oh, it was. Thought so.
1: What are you up to? Mooching about. Mooching about? In my house? Oh.
0: I think we talked a little bit here about some of the performances. Gary Stretch playing Sonny, who was a boxer before doing this film. Yes, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And this is sort of his feature acting debut. It's remarkable. Astonishing, astonishing. And then we've also mentioned Anthony played by Toby Kebble. I just want to talk about Toby Kebble a little more because Toby Kebble is now a major player in Hollywood. He is, yeah. He's yeah, in yeah, the yeah. Planet of the Apes movies, he's in Kong Skull Island, he was in Warhorse, he's in loads of stuff, always, always working. Mm. This is his first feature film. Before this, he did one episode of Peak Practice.
1: I think his performance in this is absolutely unreal. Like, because when I first saw it, obviously I had no idea who Toby Cable was because I saw it when it came out. And I watched it, and genuinely, I watched it and believed that this was a real actor with learning disabilities. Like, I, I didn't think that that was someone putting on an act at all. I, and you can believe that as well, because it's Shane Meadows. He usually works with a lot of non-actors, does mm. a lot of workshop, and You could totally believe that he would do that. Yeah. And so I was so shocked when I found out, no, like, you know, he, he's just a, he's just an actor. And I was like, wow. And his performance blows my mind, because literally his face looks so different to the, just the way he holds himself and performs at so different to how he actually does in real life. Yeah, I think him and Paddy in this together, those scenes are infused with such poignancy, I think even more so once you actually realise that Anthony is dead. Once you realise the regret that Richard is living with, you know, in the final scene, he has this moment where, and it's it's hard to tell... What? how much of this is true but in the final scene he ends up in a confrontation with kind of the, the last member of the gang where he kidnaps him and you think he's going to kill him but then he turns around and says no you've got to kill me because basically i've monstered myself by what i've done i've been completely corrupted and now i've got to be put down because otherwise it's it's the idea of going it's actually examining if you went out and committed these like heinous acts of revenge you wouldn't be able to walk away people in most revenge movies go and commit the acts of revenge and then they just go off and live a normal life and it's saying you wouldn't be able to do that it wouldn't be possible you would be completely insane uh, by the end of that and he is now scared mm. of what he might do uh, but you feel like he also kind of monster himself further by turning around and kind of throwing uh, some horrible kind of slurs and insults his own brother's way mm. and it's really horrible to watch because all the way through the film the thing you've been convinced by so much is his love yeah. for his brother which clearly was the case but I think... It's going. What I think is beautiful about that is it's showing the humanity of Richard's character, in terms of he probably did find it really hard having a brother learning learning disabilities and did find that a, a difficult and a burden. As I think a lot of people, you know, do are in a situation where they've got a vulnerable member of the family who they have to take care of. In reality, maybe. He did, in his heart of hearts, leave to join the army to get away from him a little bit. And now, obviously, he feels tremendous guilt because yeah, of that. It
0: feels like the guilt is what's motivating him. Yes. But, we, but the whole film, we're thinking it's because he loves him and he wants to take revenge on him. And yeah. I think he's doing it sort of out of... He wants to justify you know something he wants to try yeah. and make things right through guilt and in that becomes this sort of monster and again it's another surprise the film is constantly surprising us you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier you know the structure isn't a typical revenge film they have a confrontation with the villain you know really early on and then at the end for him to actually Turned a knife on himself and to have this sort of revelatory speech to the last remaining potential victim is also really unusual. It's just, I think, it's Shane and Paddy noodling with this concept and making it their own.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, th- I mean, this is exactly how the project came about because the last film that Shane has directed prior to this was Once Upon a Time in the Midlands, uh, which was a couple of years prior uh, to this. And that was Shane Mayer's biggest film up until that point in terms of budget and um, stars and out of all of his movies it's the most mainstream the most kind of standardized britcom and he obviously hates that movie it put him off filmmaking completely and the way he refound his love film was through him and paddy going out at the weekends making short films off their own backs and eventually they started writing dead man's shoes and originally i think it was a kind of slightly weirder idea about a sort of kind of working-class superhero, so they, and they developed into Dead Man's Shoes. And I think you can see parts of that with the the mask mm-hmm. and from like that. You can see where that came from. God will forgive them. He'll forgive them and allow them into heaven. I can't live with that.
0: What do you think of the soundtrack in this film? With Warp Films comes Warp Records. There's lots of artists on there, like Apex Twin. What do you think of the soundtrack to this film? Do you does it does it resonate with you?
1: I think soundtrack is absolutely amazing. Like I think it's a classic case of a soundtrack being actually curated rather than created for the film, which feels like score. Like even though this is multiple different bands, yeah, it doesn't actually feel like it. It feels like it's all one artist. And like just doing a score for this movie, like which is bizarre to me. It's so well picked, and I I really feel like the soundtrack it adds so much to this movie. Like it really feels like character in the film on its own. Like the the tracks are so perfectly chosen. Um, when one of the uh, gang members turns around to everyone for the first time, goes, "It's Anthony's brother." They bring in some music there, and it just immediately takes on an entire different feel and again it's this case of meadows taking something that's social realist and making it mythic Mm. i think is something he does really really well
0: much to shane meadows sort of frustration he did have to go on a full sort of awards campaign for this film it was nominated for a bafta nominated for eight Biffers, british independent film awards and it's uh it's sort of got this this life, it's 15 years on now since it was first released. We're talking about it here. Looking through Empire Magazine did a big list of the best British films ever. This film is in at number 27. Quite like in right. a short should, space should of high. time, <laughs> it's, it's left this huge impact. Uh, it's, it's quite remarkable, I think. Yeah, no, it,
1: it is, I think it is renowned as a kind of British classic. Um, but like I say, again, I do kind of feel despite that, like you probably turn around to a lot of young people and they probably haven't seen this movie. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I joke about it, like I genuinely think it should do. I mean I'd say this is probably it's probably my favourite British movie. Like going mean, like yeah, and I and I love British cinema, like I'm a massive kind of fan, but this for me, I mean it's my favourite film by my favourite director, so I mean, you know
0: You're in a good place here. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it's in my kind of on the on the letterboxed top four. Like it's it's in there, it's in there. So, you know, right next to Taxi Driver actually.
0: So there we have it, Dead Man Shoes is in the ninety minutes or less film festival. Fantastic. Hooray. So now we're at the festival. Dead Man Shoes is on the lineup. You have the opportunity to show this film to an audience on a big screen, but you can also add some embellishments if you'd like, to heighten this screening, to make it more immersive if you wish. How would you present this film to an audience in a dream scenario?
1: The thing is, it's funny that you say you talk about the uh, the big screening there with kind of everyone coming to do the actual soundtrack and stuff like that. That does sound amazing, but I think I'd go for something different for me. If the film was well uh, projected on the screen with excellent sound in focus, like that, just yeah, literally <laughs> in focus, gotta be in focus. Like I think that's enough, really. I think in a dark. I really do think in a in a dark room like this, this movie would play so so well, and. Paddy Considine and Shane Meadows both talk brilliantly about their films. I've listened to all Shane Meadows commentaries he does in his movies like, and they are always really insightful really interesting. You can tell that there's an emotional weight to these stories for him. They are all personal and Paddy Considine as well and I think they'd be amazing on stage together for like uh, on stage Q&A like post, post film uh, I think there's a lot to discuss and pick apart this movie not only from the production but the story and the characters and then we can finish it all off with a dj set from danger mouse
0: uh, well this, uh, that's definitely doable uh shane meadows and paddy Considine will already be at the festival for a little. exactly <laughs> so we'll just get <laughs> yeah. them to hang around stay another night in the travel lodge and they can come in and uh, and, and do the q a that sounds like a like a great way to screen this film this film is about bang on 90 minutes do you think it should be or could be longer than 90 minutes
1: no, uh, I mean I it's one of those things where I'd watch more because I'm sure knowing Shea is there is probably stuff on the cutting room floor because I know he often cuts like whole storyline out of his films. And so I'm sure there is a longer cut, but I think it's perfect as it is. I think the free app structure of like half an hour, half an hour, half an hour is so on the nose and on the money that I, I wouldn't change a thing.
0: That's a that's a brilliant answer. thank you so much, Liam, uh, for coming on, for bringing us Dead Man Shoes to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. It's going to be a fun screening. <laughs> I think maybe a late night screening for this one that might be its best, uh, uh, best mean, place. <laughs>
1: prepare to be traumatised. Like, <laughs> I should say, I showed this movie to an ex-girlfriend once and we had to take a break between the revelation that Anthony had committed suicide and the rest of the film because she was inconsolable for about two and a half hours like crying uncontrollably after that. So- so oh, you know, it's 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 a harrowing picture, but it's it's well worth it. If you want to hear me talk about films more at all, you can find Spotlight, uh, my podcast, at Spotlight Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, yeah, especially if you're a Star Trek fan, uh, comment over. But if you're not, the whole point is it's from an outsider's perspective, and we will introduce you to that world. And there's lots of other stuff to enjoy. We interviewed Richard Donner. He has nothing to do with star Trek, but it's Richard Donner. So if you get an opportunity to interview him, you're gonna take it. And now we talk about lots of other movies as well.
0: Uh, it's a great pod. I love listening to it. And and what I it's very welcoming. You know, I'm not a Trekkie. Um, I'm not even not a Trekkie like you, which I think you maybe are a Trekkie now. You know, I'm I'm, I'm really sort of coming at it for, as a fan of the movies and the TV shows are all completely alien. But you make me want to see things like uh, Next Generation. You know, I want to see some of the episodes you name check. I want to see Deep Space Nine, which sounds incredible. Yeah, <laughs> Deep Space
1: Nine is is really really good. And definitely, uh, like ahead of its time and stuff. If you ever seen the Battlestar Galactica remake, which is really revered, like all started with DS9, definitely.
0: Uh, And I'm I'm loving Discovery, so it's great to hear you guys' thoughts. You did a great episode where you talk about the whole of Series 2 in one podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, episode by episode breakdown. We did one for Season 1 as well. We did one for Season 1 with Sean McLaughlin, uh, who's a brilliant stand-up comedian, works with Ricky Gervais a lot. And Season 2 we did with James Dyer of Empire Magazine and the Pilot TV podcast. It is hard going to try to break down an entire kind of season in what episode, especially as we are literally going to episode. It's not even like we do an overview, we're like right, this episode, then this episode, then this episode Uh, may have to rethink that structure in in future. (laughs) I was just thinking about you guys
0: going through that, but uh, but it was a good listen, I'm glad you did I'm glad. glad. So you can get Spotlight uh, Podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts, the same place you can find the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, we're a fairly new independent podcast that really helps, Uh, we're also available on all good podcatchers like Spotify and all that stuff. You can contact us on social media at 90 Min Film Fest on Twitter and Instagram, and we have a website 90 Min Film Fest. That's 90minfilmfest.com. The show was produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements, and the show is edited by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Goodbye.